We have Baptists from the Global South who are now coming as missionaries to the Global North and revitalizing church life ministry, making us rethink and consider what it means to be Baptist. So I hope that their influence can be part of our Baptist understanding today from history to the present time. The earliest Baptists understood that uh, the churches that they left, uh, even though they, they differed on these practices about the church, they still held to the, to the same gospel. Right? And therefore, uh, they still practice the ordinances in a way that wasn't counter to the gospel. Because we are a local body of baptized believers who try to keep in our minds and in our hearts the fact that we are part of this larger story. Baptist women have made creative contributions, essential contributions to Baptist life, sometimes within institutions and local churches and sometimes beyond those. I don't know if critical race theory can be well reconciled with Christian theology or not, but I sure want to hear what African-Americans have to say about that issue. All right, so we're going to go ahead and get started. I'm Joey Cochran. I'm the social media coordinator for the Conference on Faith and History. And uh, usually the way these virtual coffees go is we... we oftentimes uh, give you a few announcements about news that's going on at the Conference on Faith and History. So I'm going to share uh, a couple things that are that are happenings uh, for the Conference on Faith and History. The first one is you may have seen uh, in the past month that we advertise our call for papers for the biennial conference, which will happen on October 20th through 23rd. So uh, we're starting to build panels for that. If you're interested in contributing uh, a paper or helping host a panel, if you would uh, go ahead and, and contact Lisa Clark Diller. She's managing uh, the call for papers and you can email her at ldiller at southern.edu. Also, if you, if you haven't seen, we have been also hosting a Lenten devotional series on our website, faithandhistory.org. And it's been a number of members and friends of Faith and History that have contributed their devotions. They've posted every Monday and Wednesday. And during the week of Holy Week, we'll have a post each day through Easter Sunday. So uh, we encourage you to visit... Uh, faithandhistory.org, uh, read those devotionals, share them with your friends, uh, and let other people know about them. They're very much in the same spirit as the Faith and History, a devotional that was published by Baylor Press last year and edited by Beth Allison Barr and Chris Gertz. And then uh, the third announcement that I'd like to bring to your attention is we will have another virtual coffee uh, next month at the end of April on Friday, April 30th at 12 p.m., the topic is going to be Black Scholarship and the Racial Reckoning. Malcolm Foley will be returning again to host for us. He's a grad student at Baylor. And Paul Thompson of North Greenville University, Alicia Jackson of Covenant College, and Carrie Lattimore of Trinity University in San Antonio, Texas, are going to be our panelists for that conversation. So we uh, invite you to return at the end of next month for that. Finally, uh, as we're Moving through our first full year of doing these virtual coffees, uh, I am starting to look for pitches for ideas for forthcoming virtual coffees. So if you have an idea of a graduate student that would be a great host for a conversation for one of our virtual coffees, and if you have some ideas of a panel and a topic, uh, go ahead and pitch those to me. You can send them to faithandhistory at gmail.com. And I'll be able to field any of those pitches for you and start a conversation about setting up a, a virtual coffee in the spirit of the topic that you'd like for us to talk about. So today for our virtual coffee, I want to introduce to you uh, our guests. Today's topic is on current issues in Baptist history. And so we're going to talk about the different contests and the contexts that have taken place throughout the history of Baptist uh, of the Baptist people and some of the interesting issues that are relevant today. 
Uh, today, I have with us Melody Maxwell, who's an associate professor at Acadia Divinity College, and she's the author of Who I Am, Southern Baptist Women's Writings from 1906 to 2006, which is published by University of Alabama Press. Also with me is Jeff Chang. He is an assistant professor at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's also the curator of the Spurgeon Library there and the book review editor of Themalios. He's the editor of volumes five and six of the Lost Sermons of C.H. Spurgeon, which is published by B.H. Academic. And then our, our final panelist is Barry Hakins. He's a professor of history and the chair of the history department at Baylor University. He is the author of numerous books on Baptist history, including God's Rascal, a biography of J. Frank Norris, uh, published by University of Kentucky Press, Uneasy in Babylon, Southern Baptist Conservative and American Culture, University of Alabama Press, and he <laughs> co-authored with Thomas Kidd uh, for Baptists in America, which is published by Oxford University Press. So I'm going to go ahead and, and kick off our, our conversation today, and I'm going to direct our first question to Barry Hakins. And so Dr. Hakins, uh, just to just to start out talking about Baptist history, where do you locate the origin of the Baptist story and why do you locate it at the point that you do in history? Well, first, let me say thanks for having me. It's really good to be here. As I saw everybody clicking in, I was scrolling across the top of my screen and I feel like I'm at a conference on faith and history, a biannual meeting. I saw Rick Kennedy there. I started looking around for where the, where our beer was, but uh, it's it's really good to be. I feel like I would just want to chat it up with a bunch of people I haven't seen in a while, but I I guess I have a duty to 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 take care of uh, here as well. Uh, so when I when I got this question <clears throat> from Joey, I immediately you know had this answer in my head, and then I thought, wait a minute, I'm on record on this. I better go see what I believe. So I, so I got I got out the book Baptist in America. Because Tommy wrote the first half and I wrote the second half and then we collaborated on bringing it all together. So he wrote the first chapter where, where we addressed this. And uh, lo and behold, I found out that uh, what I thought I believed, I do believe. And it's, it's in print and so forth. So there's this debate. Um, for those who don't do Baptist history, there's this debate about the origins of Baptist history that goes back. I know it goes back at least to the 1980s because that's when I was in grad school. But I'm pretty sure it goes back to the 1680s or before. So the question is, you know, do the English-speaking Baptists, do they come out of the Anabaptists, you know, left wing of the Reformation with Anabaptists or not? Uh, and so when I was in grad school in the 80s, there was this um, really great guy named Billy Estep, William Estep, and he was at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And he's the Baptist historian at Southwestern Baptist. And the main book he writes is called The Anabaptist Story, kind of a, a little subtle hint about where he thought Baptist history began. And then you had Northern Baptists like Robert Torbett and, and others who, who took a very different view and said, no, there's not that much connection between the Anabaptists on the continent and the English-speaking Baptists. And where I come down, where Tommy and I came down in our book, is that um, I think English-speaking Baptists are sort of their own movement, but there was a lot of going back and forth. I mean, literal geographic going back and forth across the channel. And, of course, the two big figures in English-speaking Baptists Foundings are Thomas Helwes and, and and John Smith, and uh, so Smith and Helwes both you know went across the channel. They both had dealings with Anabaptists, and yet they really seem to me to be products of sort of English separatism and the dissenting tradition in England. So I wouldn't go as far as Eastup used to go and 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 sort of claim the origins of English speaking Baptist history as part of the Anabaptist movement, I would say it, it comes out of English separatism uh, with some Anabaptist influence as Smith and Helwes spent time uh, in the Netherlands. Uh, Melody or Jeff, do you guys have any uh, input on this or even deferring views on it? I'd be glad to speak to the question first. Uh, there are multiple views of Baptist origins. And I just have to say, even though I now live in Canada, I was raised in West Tennessee in the landmark tradition, or at least those ideas were in the air. I remember my mom telling me that Baptists weren't Protestants and she couldn't tell me any more than that, but that was the view that she had been passed 
had been passed down to her, right? So the idea that John the Baptist was the first Baptist and there's this unbroken succession or trail of blood all the way through history of the true believers who um, were Baptistic in nature. That's not the view I now hold, um, but that was influential on my um, upbringing. And so I would agree with Barry. When I talk to my students about the origins of Baptist, I talk about a solid line from the English separatist to the first Baptist. And I talk about a dotted line, perhaps with the Anabaptist to the first Baptist, some influence, right, perhaps in believers' baptism and Arminian theology, but the clear line of connection is that from English separatists. What about you, Jeff? Where do you, where do you locate it? Yeah, I would agree with what's been said. Uh, and I guess the one thing I would add is part of the debate among Baptists, you know, as they sort of left um, the Church of England, you know, the, the, the English separatist movement, sort of trying to figure out, you know, are we leaving behind kind of a false church or a true church, right? Uh, if these were false churches, then then their baptism was not valid, right? Then we need to sort of, uh, <clears throat> they, they didn't have the authority to baptize, and, and therefore, obviously, we need to pursue believers' baptism. Uh, but even as, the, as kind of understanding them to be false churches, then how can you even understand kind of the history of Christianity if there was like no true church on earth? Right. And so, therefore, there was that, that sort of pressure around that question on towards kind of the, the landmarkist position. But I think the earliest Baptists understood that uh, the churches that they left, uh, even though they, they differed on these practices about the church, they still held to the, to the same gospel. Right. And, and therefore, uh, they still practiced the ordinances in a way that wasn't counter to the gospel. Uh, and therefore, we could understand them to be sort of irregular churches and yet still true churches. Uh, and yet, and, and therefore, we're still connected to that stream, even though we've left it. Right? So um, that that was sort of part of that discussion. Excellent, great. So uh, let's go ahead and go on to our next question. And Jeff, I'm going to go ahead and just ask you to to lead off with it, even though it's a question that was directed to to all of you panelists. Um, what are the parts of the Baptist story that need to be celebrated more by all Christian traditions? Yeah. Yeah. A couple of things came to mind as I thought about that question. Uh, one, I think Baptists, maybe earlier than, than most other traditions, um, with the exception of the Anabaptists, uh, they, they sort of understood the separation of the church and state, right? They understood kind of the, the distinctness of the church from the world. Uh, you know, English separatists were heading in that direction, uh, but, but we also see them once they arrive in New England they establish a, a state congregational church, right? Uh, so it's, it's really kind of the Baptists who, uh, who pushed kind of towards this understanding of, of the church being distinct from the world. And, and I think that's a, a, a particularly helpful contribution in our day, um, <clears throat> you know, as we live in a society that is increasingly leaving behind kind of a, a nominally Christian culture to one where Christianity is sort of an unfavored minority I think there are rich resources uh, in Baptist history for us to sort of draw from, right, to, to help us think about how do we function as Christians uh, kind of in this world. The other thing I would want to add would also be kind of the, the Baptist understanding of kind of the, the, the rich congregational nature of the church. You know, Baptist church covenants before the 1830s show something of this, right? I, I think in our day, we have kind of this rise of, of the small group movement and the house church movement. And, and these are so popular because people want more out of their churches. They, you know, they've seen sort of the, the shallowness of relationships sort of in, in, in consumerism in the mega church movement. Uh, and they're wanting kind of depth of relationship. They're wanting discipleship and accountability and commitment. Uh, and, and I think within the Baptist tradition, um, <clears throat> We have resources for that, right? Uh, this this rich understanding of the congregational nature of the local church, uh, particularly seen in church covenants uh, as, as churches are being formed uh, among early Baptists. So I would highlight those two points. Great. Melody, what about you? Yeah, well, some of the ideas Jeff has shared, I um, have as well. The separation of church and state religious liberty as an important point that Baptists have advocated throughout the years. Buddy Sheridan says, at times Baptists have stubbed their toes on this, but when they've done it at their best, they have advocated for religious liberty for all, right? Thomas Helwes 
the idea that in the language of the time, he says, let them be heretics, Turks, Jews, or whatever. They should all have religious freedom. But I was also going to mention a topic that is more from more recent Baptist history and Baptist, uh, the Baptist story today, and that is the story of global Baptists. So, as you know, in Europe and North America, most Baptist groups are facing decline, but that's not the case around the world. In the global South, Baptists are experiencing a dramatic decline. Uh, far too often when we think Baptists, and I've been guilty of this, we think of at least the United States, if not North America, and perhaps we think of Southern Baptists, which are a significant group, but not the only group of Baptists in the world. In fact, one third of the Baptists in the world today are in Africa, uh, there's a region of India called Nagaland, where 90% of the people there um, claim Baptist affiliation. And as with other denominations, we have Baptists from the global south who are now coming as missionaries to the global north and revitalizing church life ministry, making us rethink and consider what it means to be Baptist. So I hope that their influence can be part of our Baptist understanding today from history to the present time. Awesome. Barry, what, what do you think? What are some of the best parts of the Baptist story that we need to celebrate? Yeah, I, I would echo the things that uh, Jeff and Melody have said. Just to pick up on what Melody was saying, that uh, you know the Baptist emphasis on evangelism and missions is often, I mean, Baptists uh, applaud this and other evangelical Christians do as well. But it's its one of those things that isn't applauded by, by people outside the Christian faith. Uh, and so, you know, where uh, Baptists often, you know, have a lot in common when they talk about religious liberty, a lot in common with a lot of other people uh, and non-Christians and, uh, you know, products of the Enlightenment or secular people who all want to believe in, in religious liberty and uh, as a human rights sort of issue. When it comes to evangelism, that's not nearly so popular. But in fact, it is one of the one of the outstanding contributions of Baptists in history is the spreading of the gospel through missions and evangelism. Um, I would say one other thing that I think is uh, in certain segments of Baptist life was left behind. In certain segments of Baptist life, you have to be so careful, Baptists are so diverse, but in certain segments of Baptist history, there came to be such an emphasis on the individual, which is, is an important part of, of the Baptist story. But there was such an important, uh, such an emphasis in some Baptist groups on the individual and the individual believer's relationship with, with Christ and, and personal salvation, those sorts of things, that certain types of Baptists, I, I think, began to low-rate the importance of the congregation and the community. And I really think in Baptist history, and I think Jeff was alluding to this as well, uh, that was a real contribution because when you don't have the auspices of the state, um, you're very intentional about forming Christian community. And it also has to do with where you um, believe the sort of locus of authority for the, the interpretation of scripture is. And so you have Baptists who are all over the place on this one. But, you know, you do have these Baptists I'm speaking of who would say, well, the locus of authority is the individual. Each individual reads the Bible and interprets it for themselves. But there's also this, this strong tradition that I think is actually making a real comeback now through the specific work of some Baptist theologians that says the locus of authority for interpreting scripture is not the individual, it's the congregation. It's, it's the, that the, the local baptized congregation of believers. And I think that's a contribution that we're thinking more about now in certain sectors, maybe the sectors that I run in. We're thinking about that more now than we were maybe 40 years ago or so. Awesome. Uh, okay, so moving to uh, a different topic and talking about some more very, very current things that have been happening in uh, Baptist his history recently. Uh, Beth Moore recently broke from the SBC. Uh, there's been a num number of notable uh Women figures and leaders and influencers such as Rachel Denhollander who have reproached the SBC and in, in uh, concerning different matters that have to do with abuse and and bringing to attention some real uh, pivots that need to take place and some strengthening that needs to take place in these areas. A number of women and men have challenged patriarchalism in the SBC as well. So how does Baptist women's history inform these events and the current climate in the SBC concerning women in the church? 
And Melody, we're just going to go ahead and, and ask you to, to bring us your thoughts on that since that was a specific uh, specialty in your area of scholarship. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for asking the question. And I would say that Baptist women's history reminds us of a couple of things. And first of all, that Baptist institutional life has traditionally been pretty male dominated, um, you might say patriarchal, and that has changed to some extent among some Baptist groups, but um, not entirely. And so patriarchy lives on within Baptist context, I would say. Um, but second, Baptist women have made creative contributions, essential contributions to Baptist life, sometimes within institutions and local churches and sometimes beyond those. Sometimes they've taken different approaches, right? So sometimes they sought to challenge the oppression they may have experienced. Others would um, go along the lines of submission, finding that what they consider their biblical duty. And others would sometimes just sort of come apart and do their own thing, like women's groups who made their own mission societies uh, to send single women overseas. And so sort of bypassed in some sense, the denomination entirely. And um, some examples from Baptist history, I would think of would be, um, one would be Helen Barrett Montgomery, who took a strong stance. She was a quite an incredible woman, the first Baptist who was the leader of an American denomination. She translated the Bible, the New Testament from Greek into English. She was the first woman to do that and have a published translation. She, this is in like the 1920s, right? 1910s. She was licensed to ministry by her church in New York. She wrote and traveled and spoke widely about the woman's missionary movement. And she also spoke out for suffrage. She was not afraid to challenge the powers that be perhaps. She said, and I've got a great quote here. She urged women to revolt against the cribbed, cabined and confined sphere to which the natural prejudices of a man monopolized world has assigned to them. So she was not one to mince words. Some other Baptist groups and women would not have said the same thing. Another outspoken Baptist woman from history would be Nanny Helen Burroughs. She was the daughter of slaves. She experienced, a former slave, she experienced discrimination in even the workplace. And she was a key part of the National Baptist Convention. And so when she was only 21 years old in 1900, she gave this powerful speech, how the sisters are hindered from helping. Again, is freely speaking her mind. And as a result of that speech, the Woman's Convention of the National Baptist was formed at the same meeting. She led it for like 50 years. She also established the National Training School for women and girls. Um, seeking to advance their learning and understanding. So another historical figure um, seeking out broader roles for Baptist women. And then on the other side, maybe there's the case of Women's Missionary Union, which was deliberately formed as an auxiliary to the Southern Baptist Convention, um, at least outwardly embracing this idea of submission, being good Southern women. And they didn't create an independent board for that reason. But it's ironic because the fact that they were an auxiliary meant that in later years, when the Southern Baptist Convention took more of a rightward turn, they remained independent. So they're, what they had originally seen as a submissive posture became more subversive as WMU began to provide materials for the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, the more moderate uh, breakaway group from the SBC and some of the leaders expressed affinity with CBF. So we see even today, some women in the SBC and beyond some Baptist women taking similar strategies. Barry, Jeff, how, how, have, uh, how can Baptist women's ministry inform the current issues that are taking place right now in the SBC? I, I, I wanna pick up on uh, uh, the, the story that Melody just told of Nanny Helen Burroughs because uh, the two women that came to my mind when I read this question, one was, uh, well, they were contemporaries of Nanny Helen Burroughs, and one was Virginia Broughton. And uh, <clears throat> so Virginia Broughton in the 1870s and 80s, during, you know, during just after Reconstruction, she's part of the Black Baptist movement that is you know, going to become the National Baptist Convention. But at this time, she's a school teacher in Memphis. And Joanna uh, Moore 
was a white woman missionary from uh, the Northern Baptists, and they were coming into the South to help Black Baptist churches uh, and to spread the gospel and so forth. And so Joanna Moore, the white Northern Baptist, invited Virginia Broughton to one of Joanna Moore's Bible studies and began to mentor her, and they developed this great relationship. And so Virginia Broughton becomes this sort of traveling preacher. She's riding on horseback on the weekends, you know, teaching during the week and, and uh, preaching on the weekends. And then she starts to organize these, these groups that she calls Bible bands, and pretty soon, and they're women's, what there are, they're women's Bible studies. And, and she's planting them. It's like she's almost doing a Methodist circuit rider sort of thing. She's planting these Bible bands all over Tennessee and Eastern Missouri and so forth. And then what is so touching about this, or what really is so moving about it, is that it, it becomes clear as we look at this, and probably the scholar that has given us the best case uh, story on this is uh, Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham. She, she, she argues and shows so clearly that Joanna Moore and Virginia Broughton, white and black, that divided them in that era, but they bridged that because of their commonality of being women in male-dominated, indeed patriarchal denominations. So what they had in common, in addition to their love for Jesus and spreading the gospel, is they were always fighting the men in their, in their denominations who wanted to dominate their own work. So Melody mentioned, you know, the auxiliary of the, of the National uh, Baptist Convention. The men took it over. I mean, the women still ran it, but they had to have a man who was officially the, the head of it. So Joanna Moore and Virginia Broughton, they had this common experience of always having to work in a subversive way uh, to do the work that they thought God had called them to do. So they had that in common as women, even as society told them they were supposed to sort of keep separate from each other uh, as, as a matter of race. So I just thought that was a fascinating story in, in, in history that probably tells us a lot of things. So, Yeah, one of my favorite really stories. Does. Jeff, what about you? One of my favorite stories like along these lines uh, is the story of the, the Milliard Seventh-day Baptist women. Uh, this is a congregation. Uh, I think they're in London. Uh, Tim Larson tells a story in, in one of his books. Um, but it, it was a congregation that had dwindled down to just women. And, and they were trying to kind of keep it alive. Uh, and the trustees stepped in and said, it's time to dissolve this congregation. Um, <clears throat> but the women spoke up and said, hey, just because we are just, just because we're made up of only women, doesn't mean that you can kind of throw out congregational authority out the window. Uh, and as the association looked at it, um, they actually voted that the women were right and they didn't have the authority to, to sort of just kind of take over the, that, that congregation. Uh, and so what I appreciate about that story is just how they're, you know, at a time when women still didn't even have the right to vote. Uh, and yet within the local church, given kind of a, a, a Baptist ecclesiology, uh, they recognized that these women had real authority in, in the local church and could exercise that legitimately. Um, and I just appreciate how, you know, in, in so many ways, as we think about how we relate between men and women, uh, people of different backgrounds and cultures, I mean, the church should be countercultural, shouldn't it? Uh, it should, we should see something that would be distinct from the world, uh, something that stands out. And, uh, and I think even as we talk about kind of issues in the SBC, um, <clears throat> I don't know that the goal is necessarily that we would reflect what's going on in our culture, but even sort of reflect something that's even bigger and better and more beautiful than our culture, right? Something that reflects what we see in scripture. So um, I think that's, a, that's an important lesson that we draw from that. Great. Uh, so just for all of our audience to know, we usually move over to uh, allowing all of you to contribute questions with portion of our time. And so if you want to go ahead and, and start thinking about a, a question that you might want to post to this panel, you can go ahead and drop that in the chat and I'll be paying attention to those questions. We do have uh, two more questions that we want to field before turning to your questions. Uh, and so let me just direct this question back to you, Jeff. It's, a, it's about historical studies. And uh, the use of historical studies in the early church, medieval and reformation studies, uh, it has a huge contribution to current Baptist studies. Uh, I'm thinking about how there, there is this trend uh, that 
that's taking place. And it really is from Catholicity that Scott Swain uh, promotes as well. But also um, here in Baptist studies, there's also this development of Catholicity within Baptist studies. So to current issues in Baptist history. Yeah, I think it's it's so important for, for Baptist historians and theologians to understand that our roots are in the early church, in the medieval church, in the Protestant Reformation. Um, and I think that just needs to be something that's underscored in, in our churches. I mean, one of the ways that we see that is in, in all of our Baptist confessions. You know, when I served as a pastor, uh, one of the things I would do in my membership class uh, would be to walk through my, my Baptist church's statement of faith. Uh, but you can do this with kind of any Baptist confession. And, and what I would do is I would divide each article into three categories, right? Is this a historically Christian article? Uh, is this a Protestant or evangelical article? Or is this like a distinctly Baptist article? Uh, and as we looked at it, you know, 80% of, of the articles in our statement of faith, uh, they would fall under that historically Christian category, right? Uh, truths about the Trinity, about Christ, about sin, about heaven and hell about humanity, uh, and so on. Uh, so the vast majority of what we believe in our churches are in line with kind of what Roman Catholics believe and what Eastern Orthodox believe and, and all other sort of historically Christian traditions have believed. And then you've got that 15% or so that uh, are, the, are the doctors that come to us from the Protestant Reformation, right? So justification by faith alone, sola scriptura, about, about conversion, and then you've got that, you know, in, in my statement of faith, it was just that one remaining sort of half of an article uh, that dealt with believer's baptism. You know, that was sort of the, the Baptist contribution to, to church history. Um, of course, there's a lot more that Baptists have contributed. But, you know, when it came to my church's statement of faith, that's how it sort of broke out. Uh, and so it's just crucial for us as Baptists to recognize that, that we stand uh, within that tradition of sort of faithful, orthodox, historic Christianity, right? stretching back all the way to the early church. Uh, and so I find that to be so important, uh, especially as I, I encounter, you know, Baptists in our churches who are being drawn to, to you know, Eastern Orthodoxy or perhaps even to Roman Catholicism. And, and part of their sort of burden is just feeling like they don't want to deal with the debates and they just want to sort of hitch their wagon to the oldest show in town. Um, and, 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 you know, the Baptist tradition to them seems like something so novel, so recent, uh, and yet it's so vital that we show them that actually our roots go all the way back to the beginning. Even as we trace our heritage to the English separatists, we do understand that there is a line going back even to the early church. Uh, and, and that means that, therefore, in our, in our study of theology and history, uh, that we should very much interact with those traditions. You know, we should look for resources outside of you know, John Smith and, Hel and, and Thomas Helwes uh, and, and their time, uh, but going back all the way to the early church. I think one of my colleagues here at Midwestern is doing a great job of that. Uh, his name is Matthew Barrett, uh, doing a really good job of sort of recovering a, a nice scene, understanding of the Trinity, uh, explaining, interpreting those words as those Christians would have understood it. Uh, and that has been helpful for me in my study of, of Baptist history, because I understand that that's kind of my tradition also. Um, so, yeah, we need to take an account, into account all of that history if we're going to understand Baptist thought properly. Great. Melody, how have you seen the early church, medieval, and Reformation studies contribute to current issues in Baptist studies? Yeah, I'll, I'll just say briefly, because I affirm much of what Jeff said there. First of all, it reminds me, us, that Baptists did not come directly from John the Baptist, um, but we're, we come from this specific historical context, but yet we are part of this global body of faith across time and space. Even if we think everyone didn't get it completely right, we recognize we're part of a bigger story. Sometimes Baptists can emphasize autonomy so much that we forget our interdependence, we forget community and the, what we share in common with other Christians, right? Uh, we have some distinctive doctrines and I believe they're important, and I am a Baptist for, for those reasons. But we also need to recognize what we share in common with the broader church and not be so siloed off that we forget that others indeed have sought to be the New Testament church as Baptists have and have had expressions of faith that inform our beliefs and practices even to today. 
Barry, what about you? Yeah, my uh, my answer is very similar to, to uh, Jeff and Melody's. And my reflection on this really doesn't comes comes probably less from my from my scholarship than from my own experience in my own local church here in Waco. I didn't become a Baptist until I was in graduate school. I grew up in Michigan. I was from the Holiness Free Methodist tradition and so forth, and uh, eventually, you know, became became a Baptist. But my church here in Waco, Day Spring Baptist Church. Um, I mean, people refer to us as Bapto Catholic, and we're happy to accept that, you know, with with a little bit of a, a grin, because we do we take very seriously the Catholicity uh, of the Church, the communion of saints across time. We don't have a problem with creeds. We say the Nicene or Apostles' Creed every time we baptize um, a, a new convert. We want them to hear, this is what you've been baptized into. These are the doctrines of the church, and, and we as a community are the life of the church. I was saying this one time, on a, I was on a panel with my friend Daryl Hart, and I talked about these things, and and he, he remarked, you know, how, if you know Daryl, you know, he's he's always does this to me anyway. You know, he, he, he basically jabs me and, you know, and says, well, you know, is your church even Baptist anymore? And my answer was, we are because we are a local body of baptized believers who try to keep in our minds and in our hearts the fact that we are part of this larger story that Jeff and Melody were just talking about. We are part of this tradition of saints throughout the ages of a universal Catholic church, small c. And, um, and, and even as I mentioned earlier in another question, we see the, the locus of authority for interpreting the scriptures being in the congregation, not in the individual. So, so we take this ecclesiology very, very seriously. And I know that that, that doesn't reflect all, there are all kinds of Baptists and, and that doesn't reflect everyone. But for me, uh, you know, that's, that's where, where I am in terms of Baptist sort of communitarianism. And part of this, a lot of you will recognize this as part of an outgrowth of recent theology of, um, you know, James McClendon and my friend Barry Harvey, the other Barry H. at Baylor, uh, and um, uh, Curtis Freeman and others who have really been trying to articulate this out of a Southern Baptist context for about 30 years now. So my church is a, is a product of that sort of uh, reflection. Right. Now here's the last question. This is to, uh, there, there has been this, uh, recent strict. This approval. In, in many ways, but how do you think it's going to be a challenge for Baptists who wish to engage in, in gender, women's, race, and, and other areas of social history uh, when, when they're, they're being barred from being able to employ any, any method? I'm going to step in. Joey, real fast, because you broke up on that one. So I just wanted people to hear the question that it's, there's been a, recently there's been strict disapproval of critical okay. race theory and critical race theory methods for Southern Baptists. And how will this be a challenge for Baptists wishing to engage in gender, race, and other areas of social history? So I'll just clarify that. Do we know who's supposed to go first? It says all, so I think anyone. <laughs> so who, who would like to respond to that? Go ahead, Barry. And, you know, um, with apologies to, to uh, my, my Southern Baptist brothers and sisters here today, when I heard about this meeting of Southern Baptist uh, theologians, I guess they were you know, seminary presidents and came out with a statement, basically, as I understand, I haven't studied the statement, but it, it, it struck me as a statement saying you, you can't, uh, use critical race theory in Christian theology or something like this. And these were all white males who came out with this statement. It reminded me of about five or six years ago uh, on the sports program, All Things Considered, Tony Kornheiser and Michael Wilbon debate sporting issues of the day. And five or six years ago, there was this momentary debate about NBA, African-American NBA players using the N-word. And Mike Wilbon is African-American and Tony Kornheiser is white and Jewish. 
And so Kornheiser deferred to Michael and said, okay, we'll let you start off on this one. And Wilbon, the African-American sports journalist said, I don't like the N-word. I don't use the N-word. I'm teaching my son, Matthew, not to use the N-word. I think it's offensive. But let me tell you something else I think is almost as offensive. It's white people telling black people how they ought to talk. And that's what I thought of when I saw a group of white theologians telling everyone, including African-American theologians and historians, that critical race theory is somehow off limits. I don't know if critical race theory can be well reconciled with Christian theology or not, but I sure want to hear what African-Americans have to say about that issue. And I have a hunch that it's going to, it's a similar debate that we had about postmodernism. Can it be appropriated for Christian ends? Can the Enlightenment be appropriated for Christian ends in certain ways? Can Aristotle be appropriated for Christian theology? So I think this is a very important debate to have rather than saying off the top that critical race theory is somehow completely out of bounds. So that's, that's my initial reaction to that. Yeah, what I'll add is... Melody, what did you think? Oh, go ahead, Jeff. Well, uh, you know, I did see that statement from the seminary presidents, um, but I, I think what I want, what I want to highlight is just that there's still a lot of diversity in the SBC, you know, and, uh, you know, even though those, those men do represent kind of institutions, uh, I think the more, the kind of more formal statement that's been released is resolution nine, uh, a couple of meetings ago. And it talks there about, you know, there's a place for sort of some use of CRT as analytical tools subordinate to scripture. Uh, and, you know, and I would, for all those other views that you mentioned, Barry, I think we would all hope that they would; those views would be subordinate to Scripture, right? That, that at the end of the day, Scripture is kind of ultimately authoritative and and sufficient for for the Christian life. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I was very comfortable with Resolution Nine. I think there was a good diversity represented in, in the approval of that resolution. Um, but the challenge is whether or not Baptists will be kind of comfortable with that diversity, right? With, with that sort of statement and, and, leave, and allowing for degrees of engagement with CRT uh, or whether or not they will insist on kind of one particular sort of degree of engagement, whether it is no engagement at all or, or, or you know, whatever else. Um, and certainly, yeah, if, if they take a more strict position against it, then I do think it will affect kind of the shape of scholarship coming out of Baptist institutions potentially, you know. Um, the, you know, less attention paid to minority voices, potentially, uh, less attention paid to the ways our, our, our ancestors were inconsistent uh, in, in their preaching of the gospel and, and loving the, the poor and uh, the suffering around them. Yeah. Um, I'll let you go ahead. Yeah, I'll speak to that as well. Um, a bit more thinking in the realm of academic scholarship as has been touched on. First, I'd say, uh, again, a reminder that Baptists are bigger than Southern Baptists. Um, and there are millions of Baptists around the world who are maybe not having this debate right now, although it's certainly an important topic to be talking about. Um, and also that the academic realm is a bit separated from the popular realm. I don't think the archivists at Baptist Historical Archives, Southern Baptists, are going to say, you can't come in if you're studying gender or race. I mean, I know that's hyperbole, but those studies should be able to continue. They may face some pushback, those scholars related to their methodology, um, because of this conversation in the SBC. And it may be if they're doing interviews, oral history, things like that, that people may be less likely to open up about their experiences if they are Southern Baptist. Um, so it may be also harder to find some places to publish this type of research within the SBC. But again, most academic publishers are outside of the denomination. And occasionally some research findings might be dismissed um, because of the critical theories they're used, that they are using. But overall, the broader scholarly realm, I don't think would have a problem with this type of engagement in scholarship. Now, uh, Tim Larson, he, he dropped a, a great question that I, in some ways is kind of related to this because it, it could end up being that there may be situations where church discipline has to take place um, in different ways to reinforce these things. And so he, he asked the question, can, can you guys talk about 
Uh, Baptists and church discipline, what is changing? Uh, what trends do you see in, in that area of thought? I can speak from my context in Atlantic Canada and others will speak from their own, but I would say um, certainly we are aware of some more uh, conservative Baptist groups moving toward back toward church discipline, but that's not what we find among, I'd say, convention Baptists, the four main Baptist groups in Canada, including those in Atlantic Canada. We just were talking about this in my class a couple of weeks ago and students expressed um, some reluctance. How would, how would this actually work, right? In our, our world today, a need for tact and discernment while still excluding those, for example, the um, recent shooter in Georgia, right? His church disfellowshipped him, I believe. So there would probably be some affirmation in extreme cases, but church discipline would um, be something that was more practiced historically and not so much in my present context today. Historically, uh, you know, church discipline in Baptist churches has been mostly congregational because of the strong emphasis on the congregational independence of each local body of, of believers. But there have been sort of thresholds that if you, if you, cross them, then the sort of denominational discipline sort of kicks in. But the only way the only, that, that a Baptist denomination, at least most Baptist denominations, the only real uh, uh, sort of disciplinary lever that they have is just to refuse to accept the representatives of the messengers, the delegates from a Baptist congregation that they're disfellowshipping. The Baptist congregation just goes on and does what it wants to do because it owns its own property. Baptists choose their own pastors. They have their own boards of deacons or whatever uh, they want to call them. Uh, and so church discipline is usually decentralized if it takes place at all, as Melody said, if there's anything like church discipline still alive in a church, it tends to be mostly on the congregational level with some threshold issues saying, okay, we can't allow you to come and, and come to the, the meetings anymore because your congregation is out of fellowship with us. So, Yeah. And I mean, what I would add would be, you know, I, I appreciate Greg Will's work on sort of tracing Kind of the importance of church discipline among early Baptists and then sort of the decline of that practice as you get after the Civil War uh, with the rise of cities, the growth of churches, so forth. Um, in terms of kind of more recent trends, uh, I appreciate the work of Nine Marks, and I think they've done a good job of trying to highlight kind of, again, some of the historic kind of Baptist approach to churches. And, uh, and, and one of those emphases uh, is, is church discipline. Uh, and so it's not a huge movement, I would say, but um, they've they've helped highlight kind of the the, the importance of church discipline uh, for for pastors kind of in our day. Yeah, I'm just to throw in there about Jonathan Lehman's work on church discipline. I've always appreciated the fact that he doesn't just emphasize the the punitive side of church discipline, but the loving side of church discipline and how when it is instituted, it needs to be done with a very loving and restorative. Uh, process. I would add Mark, that, no. um, Oh, go ahead. Barry. I would add that within Baptist fundamentalism, um, how congregations operate can be quite different. Well, among all Baptists, how congregations operate is, is, is very different from, from one Baptist church or denomination to another. But even just within Baptist fundamentalism that arose and that began in the 1920s and 1930s, uh, by the mid-50s, you have this sort of real strong pastoral authority position with a lot of fundamentalist Baptist churches. And so you have these churches like, you know, in what is it, Hammond, Indiana, Jack Hiles, that sort of tradition where the pastor is viewed as the person that everyone else defers to and the pastor sort of runs the church. But even within fundamentalism, uh, you had other groups of Midwestern and upper Midwest fundamentalism that was less emphasis on the pastoral authority and more emphasis on the board of deacons authority. And then as you move out from fundamentalism into the, the larger sort of evangelical Baptist movement, you have congregations where it's, it's the congregation itself. So you have various uh, degrees of demo democratic polity or maybe not any democratic polity within these, these independent congregations. That's nothing. Mark Knoll asked this question 
Francis Whalen has always impressed me for the breadth and depth of his learning, yet he does not seem to figure largely in works of Baptist history. Have I just missed attention to him, or is he a figure who could inspire Baptist deeper effort today? I will defer to Barry on this one. <laughs> I, I think he probably is more significant. Uh, Francis Whalen is more significant um, as an intellectual figure in 19th century Baptist life. I don't know why he's uh, overlooked. Um, I probably overlook him because I'm mainly a 20th century historian and don't get back to that. I'll tell you something interesting about Francis Whalen, though. Um, he had this, this uh, sort of political theory textbook, I guess moral philosophy, it may, may have been called in the 19th century, that was used widely in colleges uh, across the United States. And when the, the 1850s and the years leading up to the Civil War, his textbook became very controversial because Southern uh, uh, Baptist institutions like Baylor were not comfortable with the fact that he would not make that strong theological defense of slavery that Southerners wanted. And I had a student who actually wrote a dissertation on this, and, and he found that Francis Whalen's book kind of got marginalized, and it, it sort of fell out of the curriculum of the three Southern Southern institutions. Not only one of them was Baptist. Of the three Southern institutions that this student was was studying. So that was just sort of an interesting sectional and racial uh, component to this. I don't know if it has anything to do with Mark's question, uh, but I think it's a great question and it, it, it puzzles me too. So. Yeah, and I can add to that again, primarily as a historian of later uh, times, late 19th and 20th centuries. But um, first of all, we have Whalen University, right? This isn't a direct answer to the question, but named after. Wayland and Barry, you were talking about um, his writings related to uh, slavery. And I believe, uh, is it uh, B&H Academic Publishers that republished his letters and Furman's letters? Nathan Hat, I'm sorry, Nathan um, Finn did that. I might be getting some details wrong in domestic slavery considered as a scriptural institution, which is a fascinating um, perhaps horrifying study of how Baptists at that time uh, talked about slavery. And I think it was letters they wrote to Baptist periodicals, to um, some Baptist newspapers back and forth. And so you can see the arguments there with Wayland um, and Furman. So that's a, a fascinating republication that I'm glad has been put out there. I, I do have the page proofs for Baptists in America open here so I can do quick searches. And, uh, and this is in Tommy's section of the book, but uh, we at least have, uh, he's mentioned several times on at least one page, which might prove your, your point, Mark. <laughs> we'll ponder that more and see what we can do in our next volumes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, another question that we had, uh, is there any notable recent scholarship on Black Baptists and or Baptist anti-racist efforts? It's a great question, and I was trying to think of um, more contemporary scholarship, and I hope my colleagues here can fill us in. I, I thought of some sources that are about 15 years old, so not covering the most recent, and that is, um, let's see, Getting Right with God about uh, Southern Baptist. They're both about Southern Baptist and segregation by Newman, and then All According to God's Plan by Willis. I do think uh, B&H Academic has come out with a book about something about Southern Baptists removing the stain of racism. I haven't seen it, so I can't really comment much on it. And then I was again going to mention the um, this historic letters back and forth that I've already mentioned between Furman and Wayland. I think there's a, a lot of room for, for a lot of good scholarly work on, on Black Baptist history. Um, some of the books that, that I read when uh, we were working on Baptists in America were good journalistic sort of works that, that could use more scholarship. I mentioned earlier Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham's book. It's pretty old now. But, uh, yeah, I think that's a, a great area that's it's still, still open for a lot more scholarship. And I would love for someone to come here to the Spurgeon Library and do research on Spurgeon. And he was you know, very outspoken against, against slavery. Uh, you know, the, the greatest preacher of the 19th century, uh, and there he is. 
speaking very strongly against the, the American South and, and the American South hearing that and, and burning his sermons uh, and, and threatening to, to kill him if he ever showed up uh, in America. So, you know, I, I think Spurgeon would be kind of a, a, an anti-racist uh, effort, you know, an, an example of that. Uh, would love to have more work done on that. And I'll go ahead and just mention Mississippi Praying, yeah. Southern White Evangelicals in the Civil Rights Movement from 1945 to 1975. Carolyn DuPont does a, a lot of interaction with uh, Baptists throughout that work. So that would be a, another great source to look at. Yeah, and she's answering in that book, she in, in a large part, or at least in some part, is answering David Chappelle, uh, who doesn't work just his book um, is not just a stone of hope. It's not just on Baptist, but it has a lot on Baptist. As does Charles Marsh's book. It's you know it's from the '90s. It's been around a lot time, a long time now. But uh, of the five chapters, two or three of them are on Baptist. Um, and uh, I had another one. I just just slipped my mind. So uh, you know, in the last thirty years or so, there's been some good work. But again, I would say there's there's room for a lot more. And I. I think this will probably be the last question uh, that we'll cover. Uh, it's from Lester Langley. It's, it says, where do you place Baptists in the American Revolution and early Republic? And it may be that Lester might be able to clarify a little bit of that for us. Okay, can you hear me now? Um, yeah. I don't, I don't recall the, the author. I do recall the expression that the Baptists considered Thomas Jefferson a heathen, but they loved him. They idolized him because he, for a variety of reasons, part, I guess, because he let them alone. Um, it's, it's um, I'm trying, uh, I'm new to this organization and thank you for accepting me. Um, but um, I'm now trying to write a sequel to a book I did several years ago on the American Revolution. And it's really, that it was mostly with the 20th century. It's really considering the American Revolution as the last war of the Protestant Reformation. And the most radical movement in the world today is not communism or radical Islam, whatever that is, but evangelical Christianity. I would, uh, ref Make sure you take a look at, uh, again, my colleague Tommy Kidd's book, uh, God of Liberty, um, and uh, Shameless Plug. I mean, the, ch the early chapter, <laughs> that, those, that chapter in Baptist in America, Tommy does a really good job with it. And he kind of he, he does flesh out what you just said, that Baptists in the revolutionary early national period, they were able to make common cause with en Enlightenment figures like, like Jefferson and others, on the issue that we started with today, practically, and that's religious liberty and separation of church and state. And at the same time, I mean, those Baptists were pushing missionaries across the frontier, along with the Methodists and Presbyterians, and, and basically Christianizing the country. <laughs> and, and so it's this interesting thing. It's like, okay, we're going to have church-state separation. If we're going to have a Christian country, we're going to have to do it through evangelism and missions. Uh, and so, so there you go. So it really is an interesting, I, you know, I just think it's a really interesting uh, sort of paradox for Baptists in that particular uh, period of history to work so well with people who were so different from them, either secularists or, or enlightenment figures or whatever. Uh, at the same time, they're trying to convert everybody to Baptist Christianity. So. Yeah, I would add the same about uh perhaps there was a maybe apocryphal a meeting between Leland and Jefferson under the oak tree or some sort of tree where I'm sorry that would be Madison Leland and Madison where he convinces Madison to uh, include the Bill of Rights to fight for that in the Constitution so that he would get the support of Baptists and be elected to the state as a state delegate or, or something along those lines um, I would also add from the Atlantic Canadian perspective that it's interesting that Nova New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island, did not become colonies and of as the United States did not break apart, join the American colonists in the revolution. And that is sometimes discussed as a result of some awakenings that are happening among Baptists, a sort of a first great awakening, a little bit uh, delayed with a man named Henry Allen, who was not Baptist, but was a new light 
thinker and so he came this direction and he convinced people of the importance of thinking of eternal things to the point where they weren't so convinced or he told them not to worry about temporal things such as who's in the authority and this has been a tendency of some Baptists throughout history and so there's some folks who would ascribe to Alan um, the fact that these locations did not join the American colonies and become part of the revolution. So uh, I think we're coming to the end of our time today. Uh, I just want to thank all of you uh, for coming and joining us for the virtual coffee. And I especially want to thank Dr. Hakens, Dr. Chang, and Dr. Maxwell for being with us today uh, for this virtual coffee. Um, if, if you enjoyed this, uh, please like and share uh, when we uh, promote the podcast for it. And uh, we will see all of you uh, next time uh, when we talk on our next conversation about racial reckoning.